We're going to finish what I started last week, a little uh, a lesson here on remembering an important day. Last week I shared with you that, you know, October 31st, pretty important day, because that was the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 contentions in terms of uh, we need to talk about this kind of stuff to the Catholic Church, which is always understood uh, as Reformation Day, because on uh, Tuesday, uh, uh, November 1st, is All Saints Day, is when everybody be at church. And Luther wanted to have the widest, uh, if you will, exposure uh, to the, his concerns uh, as a Catholic priest with the church. And so it's a pretty important day. Uh, I'm often uh, kind of surprised that uh, in Christian circles, we only talk about Halloween, you know. <laughs> And uh, it's a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty important day in the life of the church. Um, the other thing is, um, I, I shared with you a little bit about Luther's life. And if you want to listen to it, we recorded it like we always do. But uh, Luther is a fascinating guy uh, in his journey, in his life uh, coming to faith. Um, I had said last week that probably the most uh, telling uh, moment in his life was whenever he'd gone to Rome and um, thought that this would be a wonderful spiritual experience. Luther struggled so much with a sense of guilt and a sense of he couldn't be forgiven. He had been too bad. And, and his life is a, is a pretty a sad story about that. But Luther went to Rome and uh, <clears throat> thought this would be just you know, wonderful for him. And it wasn't, except when he first got there, he wrote in his journals that when he first saw the, the um, uh, eternal city, if you will, and uh, saw the splendor of... Um, all the Vatican and that, he said this, he, he was sorry that his parents weren't dead. <laughs> that seems a little strange, doesn't it? So they could do a mass for them to get him out of purgatory. <laughs> That's what he wanted to do. He thought there was such power for forgiveness, such power for God's uh, forgiveness and, and grace that he thought, he, he wrote in his memoirs, he, he was sorry his parents weren't dead. Becky said, did he really say that? I said, he really said that. She said, it sounds like you. I said, no, no. <laughs> Maybe that's why I like the guy. Uh, says whatever comes to his mind. But, um, but, he, but he had a sense that there was such grace and power available. But as I told you, he was terribly disappointed. And um, the, the, the most telling experience was ever, he was uh, thinking that... Um, it was told that there was special grace given to people who went up the uh, Scalia Sancta, the, the stairway in, in, in Rome that was purportedly to have been the steps um, that Jesus walked up to Pilate's uh, counts or, or judgment seat. And somebody said to me after class, I thought that happened in Jerusalem. <laughs> well, it did. But in medieval uh, teaching or thought, they got those steps from Jerusalem and brought them to Rome and made it part of the Vatican. And it was at least a legend. And that on those steps were these markings that looked like maybe something, and they thought they were it's the blood of Jesus. So as Luther or anyone would go up those steps, kneeling and praying, <clears throat> um, there was the thought that there would be special grace given to him or anyone uh, to be forgiven. And so Luther is going up on those steps on his knees, praying. My wife has been to Rome and um, said she saw that. Uh, saw the people there. I said, well, did you see people actually kneeling? And she goes, yes. And um, so, you know, it's still there. Uh, and kneeling and praying, believing that as you go up the stairs, you receive grace from God to be forgiven. Luther, in the midst of all of that, I told you last week, he had been studying the Bible. And as he had studied the Bible, he studied the book of Romans. And he writes that 
at a moment in time on those steps, the words, the just shall live by faith, rattled through his system. And it said, he said, he stood up and walked down. <laughs> Nobody ever did that. And the reformation was on. And the rallying cry, if you will, was the just shall live by faith. And every year, I try to be reminded again, I appreciate Dave and Eden sharing last week. Every year I want to remind us again of this important day. And we just passed it. And so uh, remembering an important day, but remembering an important truth. Remembering an important truth that the just shall live by faith. So in this uh, understanding of the Reformation, um, uh, Luther made uh, several statements about this, and I think they're, they're true. Luther said that if the church ever gets this doctrine incorrect, everything else will fall apart. That, that if we don't get started right, how is it in fact that a person can be right with God? This was the great argument in the 16th century. What does it take to be right with God? What, what must one do? And Luther's argument, uh, and we'll look at a little more detail here in a bit. Luther's argument was that it was because of faith uh, based on uh, trust in Jesus Christ. So I said here on this important truth, here's the idea of getting started right. Getting started correctly. Have I got that? Yeah, here we go. You know, there's a picture of the 2016 Olympics. I don't know if y'all saw this. Uh, he's not really lined up correctly yet. Um, <clears throat> but what's happened here is this. Let me read it to you. Um, in track and field, in 2010, the Amer the uh, Federation for Track and Field changed the rule. <clears throat> changed the rule. It used to be that you could have two false starts during a race. And the Track and Field Federation thought that people were taking advantage of that to try to kind of slow the race down like that. So in 2010, the change was made that if there is one false start, you're disqualified. One. This is the French uh, sprinter. I'll probably mess his name. His first name is Wilhelm. He must have been there when the Germans got there. But Wilhelm <laughs> Bosselian, you know, Bosselian, uh, he has trained for four years, gone through intensive training, and trained his body, and in a millisecond too soon is disqualified from the 110 meters at the Rio Games. Starting correctly, if you're going to run a race, at least in an Olympic sport, demands that you start correctly. So this is him distraught that his time and opportunity to run is over. Doesn't matter he's trained for four years. Doesn't matter he lived away from his family, did all the things that he did. So getting started correctly. So I want us to look here, as Luther had said, that this teaching of the just shall live by faith is the bedrock of the Christian life. And I agree with him. You, you don't have to agree with me or him. But I agree with him that if we don't start right, there are all kinds of manifestations that continue outside of that. Uh, you know, I remember um, whenever I got out of high school, <clears throat> excuse me, I have some kind of sinus thing going on. Um, that had anything to do with high school. I know, but at least, okay, here we go. Uh, <clears throat> when I got out of high school, I didn't want to go to college. And uh, I got a job with a civil engineering group. And I remember working on a highway job. And uh, we were running what they called angles and had these transits and all this kind of stuff. And I was just the low man on the totem pole. 
You know, I was just doing whatever they told me to do. And our crew chief was named Phil Helfenberger. And Phil was a really sharp guy and understood math and could multiply letters and everything. And uh, he'd pull the plans out. We were building an interstate highway, uh, Interstate 64, between Grayson, Kentucky, and Cannonsburg, Kentucky. My name is written in the dirt underneath the asphalt, if you ever want to peel it up. I wrote a couple things in there. Had an old girlfriend. Her name's under there, too, so... But I remember we're, we're working and doing these kind of things, and we're running these angles, and we're checking into benchmarks and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, long story short, we get to a point where we realize we're off about a tenth. And to me, a tenth doesn't sound like too much. And so they're saying we got to run ourselves back to that benchmark and get that, that uh, elevation right. And I said, well, why do we got to do that? He said, well, we got we to make sure it's right. I said, why is that? He said, Cliff, do you understand anything about geometry? No, I really don't. You, you asked me a question, I told you. No. He said, if we're off this far here, you get a quarter mile out there, we're off 50 feet. I said, well, just put a speed bump out there or something. You know, it's Close enough for government work. That's what we used to say all the time. Close enough for government work. But starting right, starting right, if we don't start right, things begin to move in another direction. So let's talk about this, this idea of being, getting started right. The just or the righteous. Being right with God. Being right with God. Um, the, the scripture here says, we're going to look at Romans 1.17. Go ahead and open your Bibles here. That's, the, again, the verse that caused Luther to stand up on the scalia sancta and step down and begin the Reformation to say the just shall live by faith. Paul makes this great statement. It starts in 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Or I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here we go. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Yes. Well, I'm sorry, Romans. Did I not give you that? Oh, I'm sorry. 117. Romans 1. I'm sorry. Romans 1. I'm, you know, Romans 1.17. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I don't have it on the slide, so I, yeah, thank you. Romans 1.17. That being right with God. Now, this is, the, again, the, the starting point. And Luther is saying that in his day and time, and in the, back then, that, that the starting point of how to be right with God, or the righteous, has to be correct. So Noah says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this word, righteous, it, it's, a, it's a biblical term, but it would be used in all of different culture. It literally means to be in the right, to be right, to be uh, in, in right relationship with God. Another, uh, the verbal form of this term found in the New Testament is also in Romans chapter 5. It says being justified or made right. Justified. It's the same term. One's a noun, one's a verb. But this idea of being right with God. Um, it seems to me um, that Paul is attempting here to say, let's begin by saying, how does one understand to be in right relationship with God? Because I think there's a human tendency in all of us. I don't know about you, but have you ever noticed how the need for you to justify your actions when you get caught doing something? Anybody but me? You know, right? See, we want to be right. 
want to be in right relationship. You know, I, I have a student that will contact me and say, um, you know, I couldn't, um, I couldn't turn the paper in. Okay, well, that's a letter grade. But the computer lab was down. I say, that's called bad planning. <laughs> what are they trying to do? Justify it. Listen, in all of us, there's this deep need, I think, to justify ourselves. Either we're going to let God justify us and make us right, or we're going to spend our life trying to justify that I'm right. I'm in right relationship. I'm doing right. So, so we have this need, and being right with God here is said by faith. Now, we're going to look at that here in a bit, but I just want to establish being right with God means being in right relationship with God. What is that relationship? That relationship is this. Faith that says this. I believe you. The right relationship that God is seeking, that offers to us, is that you and I are in right relationship because we say to God, I believe you. I trust you. I mean, think about it in our relationships. How much of a right relationship would you be with your friends if you were saying, in effect, to your friends, I don't trust you. I don't think you know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't believe you. You know, so I says, we're going to go meet for coffee. Well, you know, I just can't trust you. What kind of relationship is that going to be? It won't be right. So the idea of being right with God means by faith and by trust, I'm in right relationship with God. Now, notice this other thing here. We'll see this in, in Romans 1. Here we go. We're, I'm going to hurry because I got a bunch of stuff. Made right with God by faith. Notice there in Romans 1.17, being right in right relationship, what's the right relationship to be with God? Is by what? By faith. Now, I asked this to my students, and I hope you understand this. Uh, they didn't, and so I sent them to the library. No. See in verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Is your Bible, is there like different font or italics or indented there? Yeah, yeah. You know what that means, right? It's important? Yeah. It's a, it's a what? Doug, you know that. It's a quote from the Old Testament. That's right. Yeah. It's a quote. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It's a quote. Paul is, not, Paul is saying in effect. Now, this is, this is where we're going get to get a little edgy here. Paul is saying this idea of being right with God by faith is nothing new. Why? Where is this from? You got it in your, your Bible? Do you see it? Huh? Habakkuk. Yeah, that guy too. I love Hebrew because you can spit on people like that. This is nothing new. Now, if you want to look at this, go look at it later. This idea of being made right with God by faith is in Habakkuk. And in Romans 4, Paul shows that Abraham was made right with God by faith. Okay? This is fascinating here. This is nothing new. This is the teaching of the Scripture throughout history. If you want to be in right relationship with God, you have to believe Him. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> you have to trust that what He says is true. You have to have confidence that what he's telling you is accurate. Now, I want to show you something here because I think uh, Luther and others, uh, at least in my mind, it, it helps a lot here. 
that this idea of being right with God by faith, as it is written, turn in your table of contents and find the book of Habakkuk. Don't, don't flip for it. Some of you will be here all day. Okay. Don't flip around for it. You, I mean, trust me while you're doing that. I remember when I was a pastor, somebody one time was preaching for us and they were preaching out of Ecclesiastes and I got confused where Ecclesiastes was. I'm the pastor on the platform and I did this. Then I did that. And I'm not kidding you. I heard this in my head. You got one more flip and they're going to know you don't know where it is. I opened up to Jeremiah, act like I was following right along. I probably need to ask forgiveness for that, <clears throat> right? Go to Habakkuk, find it there in the Old Testament. It's in your, uh, in your, uh, you know, in your table of contents. In my Bible, it's toward the end there, 889. I want to show you something here that has to do with Paul is, um, is uh, quoting an Old Testament writer and I think uh, there's something really important here for us to see. Notice here. In Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2. Now, I'm reading out of the New York Standard, and the, and the ESV is pretty, pretty close to that. Um, I think I can do this with this marker here. Let's, let's uh, notice here in uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But, now, from a, from a structural analysis point, what we have here is the law of contrast. The word but. We're about to see a contrast here. And it's instructive from Paul, I think, and Habakkuk to understand the nature of faith. Watch this. As for the, now ESV says puffed up one, doesn't it? Puffed, yeah. Uh, we'll say as for the proud, and, and what they're doing is they're transliterating the Hebrew term. It means puffed up. Hebrew is very literal. It's not abstract. You know, it, it's very literal. As for the proud one, what about this person? What does he say? His soul is what? Not. What? Not. Right. But. Now what? Huh? The righteous is what? Live by faith. I want to suggest to you some structure here, analysis. What is the opposite of the right? The not right. Right? Righteous, I told you, means what? Right? So if the opposite of righteous is not right, what is the opposite of faith? Pride. Look at the text. It's a very careful structure of contrast here. This is not just some words that are flapping around there. The structure of contrast here, the literary, the literary structure here, is attempting to say that if you're going to live by faith, you will not live proud. Puffed up. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? If a proud person, or and I'm not saying you can't have pride like in your home or your house or, or have some sense of, of appreciation. But when we're talking about this here, we're talking about a person or a, 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 an approach to life that says, I got this. 
I don't need to be directed here. I got my own brain, God. I'll let you know when I need your help. This idea of puffed upness or pride is to say, I can do this on my own. I don't need your help. In fact, I'll call you when I need you. I think that's a more likely thing. I say to my students sometimes that, you know, we, we often treat God like a waiter. You know, I, we, Becky and I went out to lunch the other day and this delightful young lady, um, you know, waited on us and, and took all of my crazy questions about is this wild caught? Does it have MSG? She's just writing stuff down like, where are you from? But, uh, <clears throat> you know, no waiter ever brings you the food and says, I think I'll have some of that. You know, we, we just say, well, you can go and then when I need you, I'll call you. Right? Want some more tea or more coffee or more Parmesan cheese? <laughs> that's, that's what a prideful person does. Call you when I need you. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when you can come in here. The opposite of faith here in Paul's understanding, because he's quoting Habakkuk as the part of the gospel to say. He's saying, listen, the, the opposite of faith is pride. Because faith humbly says, I need help. <laughs> You know, faith humbly says, I, I, I'm ready for you to guide me. I, I remember some years ago, and I struggle with this like everybody I know, that, that this, um, this thought came to me one time I was in church. I wasn't really listening because I was thinking about something else. And I've done that on occasion. I've been a couple of times not listening to myself when I'm teaching. And uh, really, I was thinking that. That's a good idea. But anyway, I, this thought occurred to me. That I, that, I, that I will not live in the arrogance of prayerlessness. That's pride. Am, am I going to live my life in the arrogance of prayerlessness? I don't need to pray. I, I just work harder. I'll just get my iPad out and I'll figure this thing out. See, see, see faith says, I depend on you. I'm looking to you. I need your help. Arrogance says, I don't need help. Or if I do need help, I'll determine when I need it. And I'll call you in. Does that make sense? See, to be in right relationship with God, the opposite of faith is not unbelief or doubt. It's pride. Because faith is dependence, reliance, trust. Just like what you're doing in that chair right now. You're depending. You're relying. You're trusting in that chair. Nobody's sitting there with one leg. I don't think, unless I'm looking around. Nobody's sitting there with one leg. I'm like, oh, better not put all my weight on this chair now. You know, these are cheap church chairs, you know. Oh, I better not. No, nope. you're putting all your weight, all your weight on that chair. You're relying on it. So the just, as it is written, shall live by faith. And this comes right out of the Old Testament is affirmed in Romans chapter 4 with Paul's uh, understanding of, of Ab Abraham, that anybody that's ever been right with God, ever, from the Old Testament to now, has been because they put their trust and faith and confidence in God and refused to live puffed up and proud. It's the gospel. Yeah, Luann. It's a great question. She's asking the question for recording purposes. What was it about this verse 
that caused Luther to make this huge shift. Um, I have this in my notes somewhere. I'll just bring it in here now. In 16th century Middle Ages, Roman Catholicism, uh, there was a huge battle going on that um, one could only be forgiven based on the merit of their activities or the merit of the saints. The church had a thing called the treasury of merit. It's not like a box, but I mean, it's like, because saints didn't sin as much as Luann did. Of course, we know that, but <laughs> I'm, she, she's my boss's, my, my wife's boss's mom. That because the saints don't sin as much as Luann and I do, there's um, a treasury, kind of a, an account over here where they can be uh, forgiven by certain actions. Penance, go to a priest and, and do penance. The thing that was really rattling Luther at this time was there was a thing called indulgences. And people could buy an indulgence for a certain amount of money and be forgiven, um, which is a handy little plan. Um, and they were doing a building project. I'm serious now. I'm not kidding you. I mean, they were doing a building project, and uh, they conscripted a guy named Tetzel, T-E-T-Z-E-L, who was a Roman Catholic priest who went around and raised money by selling indulgences. I do think it's funny because an indulgence, there's some question. If you bought the indulgence, let's say I'd like to buy one for robbery, <clears throat> you know, how much is that one? Now, I, I'm not, I want to be careful here because there was the idea that that indulgence would forgive them for the temporal punishment for that sin, but not eternal punishment. Didn't mean they would go to heaven over it, but I mean there would be less temporal punishment now in their daily time and uh, some less in purgatory. And so Tetzel uh, was a pretty good marketer and he had actually a little ditty that he sang and it's this, every time a coin, the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory doth spring. Say it again, every time a coin, the coffer, this little box, every time a coin, the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory doth spring. Luther went nuts that the idea that you can buy your way or pay your way or earn your way to salvation, he knew too much. Theology, he knew too much understanding of the Bible. And this verse is what became his centerpiece to say the just don't live by indulgences. They don't live by merit of their own abilities. They live by faith in a faithful and merciful God. Luther had a picture. Uh, uh, you know, he, like I said, he said in his own work, if there was everybody that could save themselves by monkery, he would have. He was a monk. So he had a picture of hell painted on his ceiling so the first thing he saw every morning he woke up was a picture of hell. So they live right. Well, it didn't work. He slept in Germany on a concrete or just a stone bed with no covers and nothing just to bring his flesh under. So, I mean, he was trapped in this notion of earning, being good enough, having enough money to do that, to get right with God. This literally just opened his life up as well as with Calvin and Zwingli and others that started what we call the 
Protestant Reformation. Yeah. So, if we begin right by knowing what it means to be right with God and made right with God by faith, then let's see this, continuing faithfully. <clears throat> I want to I talk about faith here just for a little bit. Just, just this idea of continuing. Okay, that, this is the, 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 the rallying cry of the Reformation. The just shall live by faith. And there have been lots of, you know, I read something not long ago. There have been lots of, uh, 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 over the years, I mean, this has been 400 years, you know. There's been lots of, of uh, uh, meetings and together of the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church where there's lots of agreement. Uh, the Pope has written, uh, 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 the Pope uh, tweeted out, uh, uh, the, can you imagine that? The Pope tweeted out. I mean, you think, what does that sentence just mean? <laughs> But last week, the, no, on, 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 uh, on Monday, the Pope uh, tweeted out, thank God for Martin Luther and his bringing us back to the Bible. Pope said that. I thought that was pretty awesome. And there's been lots of this. You know, um, listen, uh, the, the Protestant church got its own deal. We'll talk about that later. I got all kinds of stories to tell you about that. But, but this idea of the just living by faith is in, in, in one sense the most important truth that came out of the Reformation that rescued it from earning, from effort, from penance, not repentance, penance. I got to do something to really pay for it. So let's talk about faith as a continuing matter. Now, um, I've, I've called this the features of faith. Um, we're going to look at, you know, we talk a lot about faith. At least my students tell me that when we discuss this, that... Um, They've never heard some of these things. And I said, well, I don't know, but we're just going to work through them as fast as we can. Then what are the features and characteristics? I'm always amused that when I watch television, and I said to Becky the other day, you know, when you talk about something, uh, and I said, wouldn't it be nice if your hamburger actually looked like that thing on TV? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Wouldn't be wonderful. And we talk about faith, and we say about that, but, you know, I saw this the other day, and I just couldn't stop myself. <clears throat> Yeah, I don't know if it's working. <laughs> you know, it, it just made me say, um, you know, we wonder if a product is really what it says it is. <laughs> you know, we, we wonder, is a product really what it says it is? And sometimes it isn't. And we wonder sometimes, is faith really what the Bible says? Is, 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 is what we understand about faith what the Bible says? So I want to I look at this because... You do know this, I'm sure, or if you don't, it's okay, that's why you're here. The Bible refers to two different kinds of faith. One, that is the kind of faith that makes you right with God. And the other is the faith that believes that God is one, like the devils do, but they're not saved. Think, think about it, it's found in, in, in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 19. When he says, you say you have faith, I have works. He says, or without works is dead. James says this question, can that kind of faith save you? And the answer is, what? No. Greek can answer itself. I think Greek is a little ADD like me too. But the way a sentence is written in Greek, it answers itself. You realize that the book of James was written early, early, early in the life of the church. Probably around 49 AD. And early on, there are serious questions. What is faith? 
That whole second chapter is an attempt to clarify that. Think about it. Within just a few years of Jesus' resurrection, the book of James is concerned to say, what is it that saves us? What is it that it's faith, but what does that look like? I probably have said this to you before. If you go on to James chapter 2 there, it says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that. That, that's, that idea of God is one is the center of Jewish theology. James is saying you can believe the center of Jewish theology. It's Shema Israel Adonai Eleheinu Achad. God is one. And every Jew, every day the sun came up, prayed that. When we went to Israel, when the, when the, when the light started kind of coming through the plain on the windows, every rabbi in that, that uh, plain got up and started wrapping their arms with the phylacteries or tefillin and put the phylacteries on and began to pray. Shema Israel Adonai Eleheinu Achad. Just bouncing, just praying the whole time. That's the center of Jewish theology. And James says, you believe that? That's good. You know what? The devils believe that too. Same word, same thought. So I had a, a person one time at Crossings ask me this. When it says the devils believe, but they're not going to heaven, that's a different word, isn't it, Cliff, in the Greek? And I said, no, it's not. Same word. Same word found in John 3, for God so loved whoever believes. He says, you believe that God is one, so do the devils. <clears throat> See, the issue isn't one of definition. The issue is one of demonstration. And I'll show you what it is. Number one, for faith to be the kind of faith the Bible refers to, it must have the correct object. In James 2, the correct object is just information. We believe God is one. Great. But you don't do anything about it. That's what James's point is. You say you have faith, but you don't have any works. Your faith's dead. So the issue with faith is never some definition about belief and rely and trust in God. The issue with faith is what is the object of your faith? Now, I say that because of, here are some verses where you can go look at later, found in Romans. You'll notice in the New Testament, whenever faith is referred to, there's always a preposition. Faith in the Lord Jesus. Faith in his blood. This faith has an object. It's located somewhere. It's not general faith. I believe there's a God. I believe there's a higher power. No, this is faith in the Lord Jesus. And I've said to my students, and as I've studied this over the years, this idea of the object of your faith is more important than the amount of your faith. Say it again. The object of your faith is more important than the amount. I know people today. I was standing in line yesterday uh, at a convenience store. So I'm some water, and you know, some guy walks in. He's buying some gas and and all, and and uh, you know, uh, paying for that. And then he says, "I want three lottery tickets." You know, he had a dream, read a fortune cookie or something. I don't know. Knows what the numbers are, and he's going to take his money which is an act, he's going to take his resources and buy a lottery ticket. Is that faith that acts? Huh? Yep, sure is. 
That's faith, ladies and gentlemen. It acts. It does something. What's the problem? The object. The lottery is an unreliable object. Listen to me. I, I, I don't know where I missed this. But I heard all about how much faith do you have? How big is your faith? Get your faith pumped up instead of saying, what's the object of your faith? A, a friend of mine, and I, I don't mean to offend you, but a friend of mine asked me one time about a person who was part of a religion that would be outside orthodoxy. I'm not talking about Presbyterians. They're close, but they're still in. <laughs> I'm talking about outside of orthodoxy where they have aberrant understandings of the nature of God, all kinds of stuff. And this guy said to me, he said, um, you think that guy's going to heaven? And I said, well, why would you ask me? I don't know. I can't read people's hearts. He said, I want to tell you, this guy believes so much he did this and this and this and this and this and this. It was pretty impressive. Amounts of money, works that he did. And I said, well, you're asking the wrong question. So what do you mean? I said, it's not how much did he believe? What was the object of his faith? You with me? It's not how much. A lot of faith doesn't get you in just because you have a lot of faith. This is why the prepositions are always used in the New Testament. That it's faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in his blood. Faith in the work of God. It's never the amount. It's the object. That's why Jesus said, you could have the faith the side of a mustard seed in me and move a mountain. You could have the, you could have the faith the size of a dump truck in yourself and you're going to do anything. Right? Don Manners, uh, Sheila's uh, husband had died several years ago. Don used to have a funny statement. He said that we were going to get him into heaven with a horse by, by a shoehorn and cliff. <clears throat> Don asked me a question one night <clears throat> on Wednesday night that um, as, I'm, as he, we were working through Colossians about Christ, our only hope for glory. Our hope for glory. <clears throat> and he said to me in front of everybody, which made me mad, Cliff, that sounds pretty tenuous. Christ, our hope for glory. I mean, I got students that hope they pass. They're not. <laughs> they hope they can do extra credit work. They're not. He said, that sounds pretty tenuous to me. That makes me nervous. And I said, okay, it's just like faith. If you hope in Jesus is he a reliable object? If you hope in yourself, is that a reliable object? See, hope and faith are dependent on the object. There's no power in faith. There's no power in hope. It's just wishful thinking. It's just hoping something will happen. Faith always must have an adequate object. That's why it says the faith, the, the just shall live by their faith. What? In Jesus. Quit worrying about how much you have. Quit worrying about how big your faith muscle is. 
and start asking yourself, is my faith in him? My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's the answer. Let me help you here just a little bit. I've done this before, but some of you may not have been here. Um, I was trained in a thing called evangelism explosion years ago. And um, we were trained to talk, and some of y'all in here, I think, have been part of the evangelism explosion. We were taught to train to ask people this question. If you were to die tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? And we were nervous about asking that question. So if anybody said yes, we'd go, hallelujah, see you, brother. <laughs> but we weren't off the hook. Because James Kennedy and others realized <clears throat> there's a, a problem in American Christianity. People have made this distinction about the kind of faith that they have. And so I was trained that if a person said, yes, I know it, I would go to heaven tomorrow if I died. Here's the follow-up. Great. Can I ask you one more question? If you were to die tomorrow and you were to go to the gate there where St. Peter, if he is there, you know, whatever. And he were to ask you this question. Why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? I was trained that the next thing that came out of their mouth is the real object of their faith. If they said I was baptized, I was trained, okay, I got to go in now. This, this is not the right object. I've tried to live a good life, gone to church. Nope, nope, nope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I, I was trained that any other object other than the finished work of Jesus Christ is the wrong object. Faith in that. What would you answer? Don't out loud. <clears throat> what would you say? That's the real object of your faith. You're saying, this is what I'm trusting in. If I were to stand before God, he said, now Cliff, why should I let you in? What am I going to tell him? Taught at a Christian university, went to church, tried hard, tried to live a good life, didn't sin as much as I did the last year. Or is my trust, my faith, my hope in Jesus Christ? Not some academic, abstract kind of idea. I'm talking about I'm holding on and hanging on to him for dear life. The second thing. The obedience of faith. <clears throat> I've had students tell me in their papers they thought faith just meant believing stuff. As I said to you before, the earliest book in the New Testament, one of them, is the book of James. And that book is trying to work out what does faith really look like. Now, I want to show you in, in, in Romans. Where, or we can go back there to Romans 1. I want to show you in Romans uh, what is to me a fascinating structure of the book of Romans. <clears throat> I've got to hurry. In Romans chapter 1, Paul begins to, to declare about the gospel. Verse 1, Paul, a born servant, called an apostle of God, which he promised before, and concerning his son, born, who was descended, or declared the son of God. Watch this. Verse 5, I'm, you can work your way down. Through whom, Jesus, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The what? Obedience. The obedience of faith. The, the, the structure here on this uh, grammatical structure is 
the obedience that comes from faith. The obedience that is generated out of faith. And this is where John, James and Paul are working hard to say faith is not just simply an abstract idea, I believe, but it really is my being trust and relying only on Jesus. There is no, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. Uh, you know, we, we, you've heard of him, I'm sure. He said, there are only those who believe obey and only those who obey believe. Only those who believe obey and only those who obey believe. I mean, it comes to this where I'm saying, again, remember it's trust in Jesus. That's easy when it's what I want to do, Right? It's easy to obey God when, I'm, when, when he tells me to do what I want to do, you know. But whenever it comes to the point where I have to say, okay, this is what you want me to do. That's where trust and confidence in him has to be present. You're not going to obey somebody you don't trust. I'm not. You're, you're not going to have confidence in someone to do what they ask you to do unless you trust them. Look at that, though. The obedience. Now, now go to chapter 16 of Romans. To show you how this works in the entire book. <clears throat> Romans 16, verses 20, start at 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifest and by the scriptures and the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to what? The obedience of faith. The book of Romans, this is another structural literary matter, is called inclusio. Inclusio is the bracketing of material. 1 5, 16 26. It says, if you want to know what the book of Romans is about, it's about the understanding of the obedience of faith that brings about this kind of life. Luther and others were aware of this, obviously. But here's where the problem comes in. If we don't really trust Jesus, and I've said to my students before, I was older than I want to admit when I finally came to the point that I believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about. <laughs> I could take you back to 134th Street in South Oklahoma City where that happened. When I finally said, okay, you're right, you know how life works. When that happened, and when it continues, that doesn't mean there's a struggle. I'm not, I don't want to mislead you. But I want to give you a phrase. That when we trust Jesus, put our faith in Him, obedience is not an act of servitude. Obedience is an act of gratitude. If obedience is only servitude, we're not trusting Him. You know, in your, you know, Bonhoeffer said only who believes obeys. I've obeyed before, though, and didn't believe. I just obeyed because I was afraid. Or I obeyed because I thought there was some reward. You can obey without believing. It's called conformity. It's called doing what you think you ought to do. 
So let me talk to you just real quickly about this kind of faith. Um, Luther and others throughout the history have believed that there are three parts to biblical faith. Let me give them to you here. Three parts. I left you some room there. Three parts. Three, three pieces to this. Obe- faith that obeys. Number one, faith requires knowledge. Faith requires knowledge. You've got to know something about it. Uh, in Latin, they call it notitia. That faith requires knowledge. <clears throat> Second, faith that obeys requires agreement. I know that my car is here. I agree that's my car. <clears throat> it requires agreement with the truth. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, I agree with that. I know it and I agree with it. So there's knowledge, agreement, and Luther and every reformer would say, until this third piece is in place, there's no such thing as faith. So I'm going to give it to you. This is a big one. You can have knowledge and you can have agreement, and it's still not biblical faith. The last one, trust. In Latin, it's fiducia. We get the idea of fiduciary responsibility. It's fiducia. It is the idea that I not only know, I not only agree, but now I trust. And no reformer from the 15th century or 16th century to now would ever believe that faith is really a combination of any two. All three have to be there. I'll give you an example how this works. My mom, uh, who lives in Florida, where all retired people go, um, you know, at some point. My mom lives in Florida, and my mom just won't fly on an airplane. And I'm not really sure why. I mean, I, you know, any, any airplane you can walk away from is a good flight as far as I'm concerned. Right? But she won't fly. And, you know, we've been after her say, Mom, come see us. We don't want to go to Florida in the summer when everybody's got, you know, socks up to their knees and they're all, you know, black socks and sandals and, you know. I feel like I'm in a Seinfeld episode. Boca Vista. Del Boca Vista. And uh, <clears throat> feels like it. Um, so I, I'll say to my mom, Mom, do you know that the National Transportation Safety Board has indicated that the safest way to travel in the world is on airplane. More people are traveling more miles than, than any other form of transport. Do you know that? Yes. Do you agree with that? Do, do, do you agree that that's true? Yes. Let's go get an airplane. No. <laughs> See, my mom has knowledge and she has agreement. What does she not have? Trust. This is one of the missing features. One of the missing pieces sometimes. Where we say we have faith, belief. But does it issue forth in obedience? To where I say, I not only know it, I not only agree with it. I trust. I can just tell you that throughout the history of the church. No one has believed that faith is simply the first two. Ever. Part of our problem in America, we're highly educated people. We've all gone to school. We all have facts and knowledge and understanding. And think that just knowing and agreeing is enough. But it's not. It must be finally trust 
and confidence to act. So I've got another one here, but you've got to go to church and so do I. But I, I want to ask you to consider this. We'll come back and get this next week. Here's, here's something here, but I think this will work. Of those two, we've got a third one to come to. <clears throat> what if you identify one of these features to apply to your life this week? Is it that you need to give some attention to not how much faith you have, but what is your real object? Ask yourself that question I asked. If I were to die and have to stand before God, what answer would I give him as to why he should let me into heaven? Maybe you want to do a little work on that object to say, you know what, God, maybe, maybe I've let the religious tradition I'm involved in or religious culture I'm in or kind of the religious things I'm involved in move me kind of a little off center to where I'm kind of trusting in other things, right? Or, or, or maybe, maybe you need to give some attention and time to say, what am I doing each week that would be an expression of my faith having obedience as a part of it? Could be you pray before you go to work or could be that uh, you, uh, you uh, uh, read God's word because you say, I want to I learn, I want to understand. I'm going to do that. What are those two to say? The just live by faith. I'd like to live like that. I'd like to live the kind of faith that has the right object and finds its way into obedience into my daily life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, a lot to think about here. Help us, guide us, direct us, keep us from error or extreme. And I pray that you'll help all of us to live out the truth of the reformation, of the gospel, that the just shall live by faith. Would you guide us and direct us? In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.